Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, January 18, 2014. We thought we'd take a break tonight, as, as we've done in the past, from the Pragmatic Genesis series. There's actually only a couple of installments of Pragmatic Genesis left, and, and then we're going to get into the... Um, later historical parts of the Bible and follow two seed line and and how the Bible teaches two seed line basically down through the New Testament it, it's probably going to take us quite a few installments to get through the old there's a lot of things to present from the from the books of the prophets that I'd like to cover concerning how Christians should look at the other races and how the Bible looks at the other races that's what's really important that I'd like to discuss, and, and we'll do that in the weeks to come. This week and next, we're going to continue a series that we did one installment of perhaps five, six weeks ago, Martin Luther on the Jews and their lies, and this will, of course, be part two. When we presented part one, we barely scratched the surface on, 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 on the text. We, we only got four or five paragraphs into it, once again, I have Sword Brethren here to assist us with this. Hello, Brian. Oh, how are you? How are we doing? I'm all right. Do you have any comments on Martin Luther? Well, just what we were talking about earlier on the phone, that he made the basic mistake of thinking that the Jews could be converted and that he should engage with them and try to get them to see that their religion was wrong. Well, well, right. That's definitely his attitude at the beginning. There's no right. doubt. At the beginning, Luther was, Luther was naive in taking for granted that the Jews were Israelites in exile, which is contrary to the words of Christ, who clearly tells us that the Jews are his enemies and to be scattered into all nations and, and punished. And, and that's from prophecies in Jeremiah that I'm sure that I will I will repeat coming up here in this series, maybe not tonight, but in the in the nights to come. The um Luther was naive in quoting Jews like Lyra and Bergensis and, and they were both converso Jews who wrote against Judaism after they were supposedly converted, but they were also both strong proponents of persecution of Jews that I believe what was actually a, my, my, my gut feeling is that that was a psychological ploy which gave the Jews an excuse to claim that they were persecuted. Most of the, in, in, in this late period of time, the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, most of the people who within the Catholic Church were beckoning the persecution of Jews seemed to have been converted Jews themselves. Right. When Christians wanted to uh, move against Jews, it wasn't because of their religion. It was because of the, their foul character and their foul practices, things Usually like usury, usury and, and, and things like that caused Christians to act against Jews. So, so it, it's, I, I see two totally different attitudes here between... Right. Christians and Jewish con Jewish converts. And some of those De Medici popes, they actually organized campaigns to destroy copies of the Talmud 
which in essence that would actually help the Jews since it would be making their supposed holy book unavailable for study so we couldn't see what they're writing about us. You know, Politarsis, as I said the last time we, in the first installment, let me put it that way, Politarsis had written to the Romans in 57 AD, and, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. This was fulfilled 13 years later when the city and the temple were destroyed. With this alone, Luther should have realized that those Jews who opposed Christ were those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And that's a warning which Christ himself conveyed twice in the Revelation. Luther failed to realize a lot of simple, basic things about Scripture, which should have clued him in to the real identity of the Jews. I don't know what the extent of Catholic teaching was at that time. Luther was schooled as a Catholic priest. Perhaps they just programmed, you know, the, the systemization of deception but perhaps they just program people around those verses. I, I, I don't, that the average Bible reader could say or should be able to see. So it, it, it was naive in a lot of ways. And, and if Christians, as we'll illustrate again here tonight, if Christians would simply believe the words of Christ, they should reject the Jews. That's all it takes. With this series on Martin Luther, we hope not only to show that it was Jewish character that incited Luther's general anti-Semitism and hatred for Jews, in spite of the fact that Luther believed that the Jews were, quote-unquote, God's people. He believed they were the people of the book, even though he didn't believe that they had any advantage over Christians because of that. He was a universalist. We also hope to show that a misunderstanding of history opens the door to universalism. And Luther's universalism reflected the, the church teachings at the time, and it was an error which assisted the Jew in their role as Pied Piper leading Christendom down the road to a mongrelized world, which is certainly the wide road to hell. We should probably start where we um, where we left off after the first installment. What we're several paragraphs into part one. I've posted. I know it's posted in a few other places on the internet, and I got it from one of those places. But I posted the text to um, Luther on the Jews, the Jews and their lies, at Christiania today, just so that it would be available on my website. Like All right. I'm like, oh, so at, at the um, time Luther's writing, most people do not really see the Jews as a separate, distinct, mongrel parasite race, do they? Most opposition to the Jews is on, it's in religious terms. You know, they're Christ killers, they murdered Jesus, they persecuted Christians, they mistreat Christians. They don't see the Jews quite yet as a distinct race. Well, you know, they saw the Jews as Israelites in dispersion. They believed the Jews were the descendants of Israel. They did not see the, the it, it's obvious to me that Luther was absolutely blind to biblical prophecies such as 
Ezekiel chapters 34 and 35 in concert with the historical explanations of Flavius Josephus, who, who thoroughly explained the subsumption of the Edomite peoples in Palestine by the, the, the people in Jerusalem under the Maccabees, which converted all of the Edomites and other Canaanites of Palestine over to what we can only really call Judaism, which was a perversion of the Hebrew religion. Now, the, the perversion of Judaism, which the Maccabees had, wasn't as bad as the Talmudic Judaism of the Edomite Sadducees, which, which came to us later on, but it was still a perversion of Hebrewism. The idea that other people can be forced into the circumcision, and especially people of other races, that's not the religion of Ezra and Nehemiah, not by any means. In 400 years from the time of, uh, well, I'm sorry, it's probably about 300 years from the time of Nehemiah and, and Ezra to the time of the rise of the Maccabees. So it, it's in that 300 years, which we actually have very little knowledge of. Josephus has large gaps in his history from the time of Nehemiah and Ezra down to the time of um, the, the, the Maccabees and the, and the struggle with the Seleucids. Most of that 300 years is missing in Josephus's antiquities. There's hardly anything there. He inserts the Esther story, and he, which he accepted, evidently, and he, exert, he inserts a small piece about Alexander the Great and his reception in Jerusalem about 330 B.C. and his taking of ancient Tyre and his siege of Tyre and, and how he destroyed it. Aside from those couple of incidents, there's nothing in, in that 300-year period from Josephus on, on um, the history of Judea. So if Josephus had little to nothing, how could we know better? So, so that 300-year period, for the most part, in the history of Judea, internally, it is a blank slate. We really don't know much about it at all. We don't know much about how the, the religion in the minds of the Maccabees had become so corrupt that they could justify going out and forcing the Canaanite and Edomite peoples, who are absolutely despised in the Word of God from ancient times, all the way down to Ezra and Nehemiah, how they could go about justifying the forced conversion of them to Judaism or, or to, to the religion of Jerusalem, it is incredible. I, I don't know what kind of mental gymnastics had to be done in the second century BC to justify that, but Josephus does record that. He never records the reasons that the, that the um, well, well, if there were any at all, and any debates, any change in philosophy, Josephus never really seems to even comment on the evils of it. He seems to accept it. 
as if it was okay. He he identifies the the family of Herod as Edomites. He gives their history descended from Edomites. He talks about the the um the wicked beliefs of the Sadducees. But he he basically aside from that, he thought Herod was a good guy. So so Josephus himself, being raised a Pharisee, he had a lot of problems in his basic beliefs. Christ would not have liked the learning of Josephus, not one bit. So, so there's, you know, Josephus does explain the history of the Edomite conversion to, to the religion of the people of Jerusalem and the other Canaanites. He does get into that, but he doesn't see a problem with it. Of course, the New Testament writers, Paul of Tarsus, John the Apostle, the, the records of the words of Christ himself, they did have a serious problem with it. They rejected the Edomite bastards, absolutely, without doubt. But Josephus didn't see a problem, and he was a Pharisee. So, so we know a little about what the leaven of the Pharisees was. If you read the history of Josephus and you understand the New Testament writers' antipathy towards the children of Esau, what would you spelled out in the words of Paul of Tarsus, then you could understand the reasons for the division in the New Testament and the reasons for a lot of the, a lot of the plain words of Christ in John chapter 8 and Luke chapter 11, in relation to those people. But Luther didn't put that together. As Clifton Anheuser likes to say, he was blind in one eye. So the lesson in all of this, though, if we can just boil it all down and summarize it in a couple sentences, our people were supposed to be destroying the Canaanites, and instead eventually we forced our religion on them, and that facilitated for their eventual domination over us and, you know, a, a rampant miscegenation, and now look where we are today. The whole world is well, in their hands. That's, uh, that's, that's it. There's greater prophetic reasons for this. I'm going to get into that a little bit in my next Saxon Messenger editorial, but what I write about the hundred years of slavery we've suffered so far in this country, under the Federal Reserve, of course, other European Israelite nations have, have been enslaved to the Jew bastards for a lot longer than that, especially the, the English. But, you know, in, in, the, in the blessing of Jacob, we see that he shall rule over his brother, and, and then we find that that's, that that's temporary, when we see Jacob address Esau and tell Esau that he will break the yoke of his brother and gain the dominion over him, that's the period of history that, in prophecy that we are in right now. That, that, that coalesces with the prophecy in Revelation 17.17 17, that, that our kingdom would be handed over to the beast. And that all came to a head, that all happened at the same time, it coalesces with another prophecy in Revelation chapter 20, where Satan would climb out of the pit 
and go out and deceive the nations. All of those prophecies coalesce with the emancipation of the Jew in the beginning of the 19th century. That, that's, I, I wrote about that at length in, in Christ Strike, but, but um, it, it takes a lot of history and the examination of a lot of prophecies to, to, um, to reconcile all of that in, in one's mind and reading of Scripture. Would you like to read the text of Luther? Would you like me to? Or do you have any more you would like to discuss? Well, I think in light of the historical precedent, every time we've tried to impart our religion to another people, it's exploded in our face and we've wound up severely injured. People who talk about this dominionist theology, they must have some agenda. Either that or they're colossally stupid. It has to be one of the two. Well, well, dominion theology, well, well, that, you know, I don't know if Martin Luther had that theology, but the Lutheran Church certainly followed the Jesuits and the Catholic Church down that path to hell, just like the Anglican Church did. And the English used that dominion theology, and especially British Israel, the British Israel circus clowns, they used that so-called dominion theology to justify the English empire and, and the English so-called civilizing of, of the world's savage peace, peoples. Of course, we should know, if you look at Detroit, Boston, New York, Trenton, Camden, Cleveland, Youngstown, um, Fort Wayne, Baltimore, if you look at those cities today, you should understand that the world's savage people can never be civilized. We're just kidding ourselves when we pull a nigger out of the jungle and dress him up in man's clothes because wherever you bring him, he's going to bring Africa with him. So, so dominion theology, we should be able to see everywhere in our history is an absolute failure. But there is absolutely no support for dominion theology in Scripture. Where in Scripture does it say that Adamic man should rule over the other races as the so-called beasts of the field. It doesn't say that in Genesis 126 and 127. In Genesis chapter 9, where Yahweh blesses Noah and his sons and their race, the, the new Adamic race, the survivors, the remnant of the Adamic race, Yahweh tells them that the beasts of the field shall be in fear of them. When white men walk in the laws of their God, the other races we should expect to be in fear of us. But we should never try to civilize those damned animals. We have no commission to do that. The law is only for Jacob. That's what the scripture says. It was never for any other nation, not even for other white nations. So, so that whole idea of dominion theology is anti-biblical, and it's anti-Christ. There's no doubt. Absolutely. Well, with that, would you like to start with Martin Luther's, with our continuation of Martin Luther on the Jews and their lives, part one, 
and we'll have some conversation, I'm sure, as we progress through, through Luther's comments. Just to confirm, this is, we're picking up from the end here, week one. Correct? For such ruthless yeah. wrath of God is sufficient evidence that they assuredly have erred and gone astray. Even a child... Uh, the destruction of the temple, right? Just to give a little background. He, he's discussing this, the, the destruction of the temple, and he's saying that that's a, a sign of God's wrath on a people who lose their things are God's people. Right, and interestingly enough, that's a point of contention in the Middle Ages. Have you heard of the um, the Varangians, the Varangian Guard? You know, the Kievan Rus? Well, well, I've heard of the Varangians, but, but I'm not a student of medieval history, per se. Well, one of their great leaders, was he, he sent out emissaries to investigate the various religions. They investigated orthodoxy. I, I want to say it was... Uh, I forget his name, but he ended up marrying the daughter of the Byzantine emperor, and he had to convert as, as part of this. I, I want to say it was... Um, yeah, Vladimir the Great, Vladimir the First, Vladimir the Great, in the late 900s A.D., of course, he sent out emissaries, and he received envoys from the Catholics, the Muslims, the Jews, and the Orthodox, and some of his people attended Orthodox services in Constantinople. When he heard that the Muslims forbade alcohol, he thought that was ridiculous and absurd because they were basically just living a life of denial, so he, he didn't really want anything to do with them. He heard that the Jews had lost Jerusalem to the Romans and their temple had been destroyed, so he said that God had forsaken them, either that or they just weren't who they said they were and that you know they didn't have any favor from God because he abandoned them. So he wouldn't consider Judaism. I, I don't remember what his logic was for ruling out Catholicism. I, I think they, they just didn't take a liking to the Pope. But ultimately, he was convinced of orthodoxy. And, you know, that's, you know, the Kevin Roos, they went orthodox. But the, the point was, he it thought that it was... like a on the old Khazar story, but that's okay. Right, but he, he thought it was an indictment against the Jews that they had been, you know, destroyed in Jerusalem. Okay, well, so did Martin Luther. It, it, it is, but if you listen to the words of Christ, it, he... It is actually quoting portions of Jeremiah, which is talking about the bad figs of Judah and not the good figs of Judah. People that were bad for a reason, and, and Jeremiah tells us the reasons. All right. For one dare not regard God as so cruel that he would punish his own people so long, so terribly, so unmercifully, and in addition keep silent, comforting them neither with words nor with deeds, and fixing no time limit and no end to it. Who would have faith, hope, or love toward such a God? Therefore, this work of wrath is proof that the Jews, surely rejected by God, are no longer his people. See, that's the assumption he's saying no longer, when in truth never were. That, that you know, never were his people. It's not that they're no longer his people. Well, well the Canaanite bastards of, of Judea could never be God's people. They should have never... Um, been accepted into the circumcision and the fellowship of the temple, which happened in the second century B.C. And Luther seems to be absolutely oblivious to that history. Christ plainly told the Jews, you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. Right. And neither is he any longer their God. This is in accord with Hosea 1.9, call his name, not my people, 
for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yes, unfortunately, this is their lot, truly a terrible one. They may interpret this as they will. We see the facts before our eyes, and these do not deceive us. Now, now here, Luther is actually taking a, a, a prophecy, which, and he attempts to apply it to these Jews, who have never um, claimed to have not been his people, who, who are never... They've never been denied that title by Christians, not not later Christians anyway. That the um, I I believe that Christ and the apostles would have certainly denied them that title. But you know this this prophecy deals with Israel. This prophecy is a prophecy which Hosea made concerning the northern tribes of Israel, which he collectively called Ephraim. And the northern tribes of Israel, when they were being taken into Assyrian captivity, 800 years before the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by the Romans, did prophecy utter this, did Hosea utter this prophecy in reference to the 10 northern tribes and and whatever portion of Judah was taken into Assyrian captivity with them, and those ten northern tribes, even though a remnant of Judah later returned from Babylonian captivity, that Assyrian captivity never returned, and there's prophecies that say that they never would, that they that every time they tried to return, they couldn't. That now the people of the Assyrian captivity had nothing to do with the remnant of Judeans in the first century. And, and Hosea is speaking this prophecy about that. So Martin Luther is totally misapplying this. And, and he is absolutely oblivious again to the fact that being a German, he himself is descended from those people of the Assyrian deportations of Israel and Judah. He's oblivious to that. And I just wanted to comment, too, on when you mentioned the similarity between the Khazar conversion, the Judaism story, and the Kievan Rus conversion to Orthodoxy. If I'm not mistaken, wasn't it commonplace back in those days if the leader converts, you know, he sets the religion for his entire, you know, tribe, essentially? Well, well you know, yeah, yeah, you could say that, that that was absolutely true. We see it all through... European history with kings and, and noblemen who become Christians and, and their entire principalities become Christians, and, and that's fine, but it's still uh, uh, the, the tenor of the story what, where emissaries were sent out requesting you know, knowledge and, and information about the various religions. It's a lot like the Khazar story, as I've read it in several places. So, so I, I think it's the supposed King Duzan of the Khazars or whatever his name is did much the same thing. So, so I, I'm just saying it's, a, it's an awfully familiar story from right. medieval history. What, what it does show is um, the, the lack of grounding in, in paganism. That paganism was never a solid foundation for, for any sort of, uh, of um, 
understanding of transcendentalism, paganism. Right, it, it, it doesn't give them any understanding of their role in life, their purpose in this world, and the afterlife, because they change their religion on a whim. The king decides he wants to marry the, the Byzantine emperor's daughter, Anna Porphyrogenita, literally born in the purple, but I don't know how to pronounce that word. So he has to convert Here. to orthodoxy. Well, well, that's why I mentioned transcendentalism encapsulating those ideas. Right, so a, a pagan might be an Odinist today, and tomorrow he could be who knows what. Well, well, the bottom line is most of the pagans I've ever known just reject morality entirely. Right, so their paganism is basically just a refusal to adhere to societal expectations of some sort of Christian mores. Right. So basically that's they're... I don't know if that's true of all pagans, but that's my personal experience with pagans. So they want to live a lifestyle of debauchery and licentiousness. Absolutely. Don't tell them they that they can be racists, but don't tell them they can't. Bop that little Chinese girl. Or, you know, don't tell them they can't sleep with their neighbor's wife. Right. All right. You know, you would lose it. If there was a spark of reason or understanding in them, they would surely say to themselves, Oh, Lord God, something has gone wrong with us. Our misery is too great, too long, too severe. God has forgotten us, etc. To be sure, I am not a Jew, but I really do not like to contemplate God's awful wrath toward this people. It sends a shudder of fear through body and soul. For I ask, what will the eternal wrath of God in hell be like toward false Christians and all unbelievers? Well, let the Jews regard our Lord Jesus as they will. We behold the fulfillment of the words spoken by him in Luke 21:20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that, is, that its desolation has come near, for these are the days of vengeance. For great distress shall be upon the earth and wrath upon this people. Well, well right, but when... In the law of the prophets, did Yahweh God ever talk about vengeance upon his elect, upon his chosen, upon the children of Israel? You won't find that in the law or the prophets, because in the law of the prophets, towards the children of Israel, God always talked about correction, about punishment for their sins, and about later mercy and forgiveness for them. But he never told about the execution of vengeance upon Israel. He only talked about the execution of vengeance upon his enemies, who are ostensibly to, the, the chief of his enemies in the scope of the Old Testament history concerning Israel. They are primarily the Canaanite and Edomite peoples. What Christ talks about in, in that very same chapter of, of um, well, he promised of, to the. Oh, sorry, Bill. Come on. I was just going to say he promised that. I believe it's in Matthew twenty-four that no flesh would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, the days will be shortened. So he's not talking about vengeance upon the elect. He's talking about saving the elect. The elect, right? In in um. 
In Jeremiah chapter 24, verses 8 and 9, Christ says, and as the evil figs, talking about the good figs and bad figs in Jerusalem, he says, and as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Surely, thus saith Yahweh, so will I give Zedekiah, he's going to give these good figs who are bad, evil men, he's going to give them over to the evil figs. So will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. He's going to give them to the evil figs that are so evil they can't be eaten. And I believe that's a prophecy of, of the race mixing which occurred between the princes of Judah at the time and, and the leaders of Judah and the Canaanites and Edomites. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them. And the bad figs were part of that curse, that reproach, they were going to be delivered for their punishment. But there are good figs of Judah. The good figs of Judah are the people that ostensibly did not participate in the race mixing, which Yahweh was illustrating throughout the opening chapters of Jeremiah's prophecy. Those people that didn't participate in that race mixing, that were, were preserved, they are the true Judah. And, and this is only talking about Judah, the remnant of Jerusalem, which is left after most of the tribe of Judah was taken away into captivity by the Assyrians. Those people are out of the picture. Those people, to a great degree, are on their way to Europe to become what we know as the Germanic peoples. Now, this remnant has good figs and bad figs left. And the good figs, we have promises of preservation. And the bad figs are to be a curse and a taunt in all the places where they are driven. And that describes nobody but the Jew. That doesn't describe anybody but the Jew. And that, that, that prophecy is repeated in, in, in nearly the same words in Jeremiah chapter 26, and again in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 17 through 19, that these people uh, are among the enemies of God, that they're the bastards that Jeremiah was talking about, the strange slips in Jeremiah chapter 2. Yahweh planted a pleasant plant, and it sprouted strange slips. But the sin that couldn't be washed off, which is described in Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah is talking about race mixing. Ezekiel is supporting that, and Ezekiel, I believe it's chapter 17, where he talks about the birth and nativity of, of Jeru the people of Jerusalem, and thy mother is, is, a, is a Hittite, or thy father is a Hittite. I'm just paraphrasing, because I don't remember exactly how it goes. I'd have to look it up again. But... but Basically, we can see why there's a, a iniquity in Jerusalem and why there are good figs and why there are bad figs. These people that Christ says will be driven into all nations and chased by the sword, they're the bad figs. Jeremiah identifies them clearly as the bad figs. When Christ explains that 
in, in his prophecy concerning Jerusalem in Luke chapter 21, he's basically repeating what he, because he is God in the flesh, had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah 600 years before that. So, so we should see that these people are clearly, there's a clear correlation here between the bad figs of Judah that we should understand are bastards. Read the prophets. Luther did not put these things together. I, I don't know if his Catholic training precluded him from putting these things together, but, but it's quite clear. And, and we should be able to see these things today. And, and it's important that we do so that we don't get, we, we don't fall into the trick that the Jews, that those people who rejected Christ are God's chosen people. Because God come in our flesh, Jesus Christ told us that his sheep hear his voice. Do you have any comment? Well, Luther is making a mistake that plenty of our people have made, though, so I don't think we can really induct. Well, well, right, but my, my point with this presentation is to show Luther's misidentification of the Jews led him to a belief in universalism because he didn't understand who Israel truly was, thinking right. that the Jews are real. His belief in universalism would lead to enable the Jews to trick us in, into this multiculturalism and this diversity, which just builds on Catholic universalism and feeds off it. But aside from his total blindness, Luther still understood that the Jews were very evil people. And at the end of this, he concludes that they're beyond repentance. <laughs> the only thing they have coming is the lake of fire. So even though Luther thought the best of these people, his conclusion was that they can only be destroyed. And, and, and if Luther, thinking the Jews are God's people, can come to, con to the conclusion that there was absolutely no hope for them, that they had to all be destroyed, that they were absolutely unconvertible well, well, and unrepentant. Well, well, if he thought that of the Jews, what the hell is up with Lutheranism today? What's up with all these German Protestants today? Well, what's their problem? If, if the, the Lutherans of today understood what Martin Luther did, the world would be a much better place because a whole large sector of Christianity would understand that the Jews are indeed the devil. Well, if you believe that the Jews are the people of the Old Testament and that Jesus was a Jew, you have to go to universalism and open the door for Germans who are Christians because they're not, you know, in your mind anyway, they're not sons of Abraham. Well, well that's my point. That's my point. The, the misidentification of the Jews is the first step to universalism. Accepting the Jews at, at their face, the face value of their claims, that they're the people of the book, that they're the people of Israel, even though Christ and the apostles refuted that, the acceptance of that story from the Jew 
forces all of Christianity into universalism. There's no way around it. Because if you could be a Gentile saved by grace, something the Bible does not teach, if you could be a Gentile in the sense that they use the term as a non-Jew, saved by grace, getting a free ride, well, well then, what's to prevent you from thinking that a nigger or a squat monster or, or a yellow monkey could get the same grace? Because that's what they're teaching. That's where they're at. If you're getting a free ride into the kingdom, how dare you exclude anybody? That's the slippery slope to hell that we find in Catholic universalism and the acceptance that the Jews are, quote-unquote, God's chosen. All right. I just, something just mentioned in the chat, it boils down to Christians worshiping Jews because that's where it ends up. And today, the, the Southern Baptists and, and a lot of these American Protestants, and, and even Yankee Baptists, because I've had it from my own Yankee Baptist cousins, they basically worship the Jews. They claim to be Christians, they, they deny Christ, and they worship Jews. Well, that makes sense, right? Worship the people who murdered him. Well, that's basically what it boils down to. Luther had a, his error comes from an obvious lack of historical understanding concerning Israel in the two centuries leading up to the time of Christ, and only the two seed line variant of Christian identity has that understanding. Right, so all these people that are worshiping Jews and they think that a singular Antichrist individual is going to come and is going to try and harm the Jews... They don't have a clue. The Antichrist is already here. Every single Jew is an Antichrist, and they're worshiping them. They've already been deceived. The Antichrist is... The Apostle John made that very clear in his first epistle, that the Jews who were denying Christ, they were the Antichrists. He used the word in the plural. He did not use it in the singular. What was it he said? He who denies that Jesus is Messiah, that man is Antichrist. They are the Antichrist, right. I, I, I'm pretty certain he used it in the plural. I could be wrong. Well, even saying he who denies that Jesus is Messiah, that man is Antichrist, that leaves, that leaves open the door for multiple Antichrists. He didn't just say there can only be one, because there can be plenty of men denying that Jesus is Messiah. Well, well he said that many Antichrists had already been born. Uh, 1 John 2.18. He used it in a plural. Even now there are many antichrists, whereby ye know it is the last time. Well, well those antichrists are the, are the devil walking around seeking whom he may devour. Every time you see a Jew lawyer, think about that scripture, because that's what it's referring to. He, he did use the word in the singular, but he made it very clear that there were a multitude of antichrists and that those were the people who were denying that Yahshua was the Christ. It's very simple. All right. In short, as has already been said, do not engage much in debate with Jews about the articles of our faith. From their youth, they have been so nurtured with venom and rancor, 
against our Lord that there is no hope until they reach the point where their misery finally makes them pliable and they are forced to confess that the Messiah has come and that he is our Jesus. Although, of course, we know they're their own Messiah and Jesus is not their Messiah. Well, right. Until such a time... Until such a time, it is much too early. Yes, it is useless to argue with them about how God is triune, how he became man, and how Mary is the mother of God. No human reason nor any human heart will ever grant these things, much less the embittered, venomous, blind heart of the Jews. As has already been said, what God cannot reform with such cruel blows, we will be unable to change with words and works. Moses was unable to reform the Pharaoh by means of plagues, miracles, pleas, or threats. He had to let him drown in the sea. And I've often pointed out, during his entire ministry, Jesus never once ministered to a Jew or tried to convert a Jew. So why are all these Christians running around talking about, you know, oh, Jews for Jesus, let's make an alliance, let's go minister to the Jews in Israel, let's teach them about our God. Do they think they're better than Jesus, that they'll be able to do what he couldn't do, or rather what he didn't even try to do? Did it ever well, occur well, to him that? Well, well, we don't see it in the New Testament, in, in the Gospel narrative, unless we really pay close attention to the words of Christ. But there were people that, that he always rebuked and never tried to convert. He always told them that they couldn't be converted. Now, now the Gospel writers don't tell us, okay, this guy is, an, is a Pharisee, but he's an Israelite. That guy's a Sadducee, and he's an Edomite. That guy, he's a Pharisee, but he's an Edomite. The Gospel writers didn't tell us that. Yahweh God in the prophets, and I don't have it off the top of my head, but, but he basically determined that the word of God would be what divided the sheep, the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. And, and that was supposed to be what elucidated what was what a man's character was and, and what his genetic background was was supposed to be the gospel message. And and that's the way Christ and the apostles treated it. when Paul as I as I've illustrated in my um, Acts presentation these last few weeks, when Paul spoke before Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 22, 20, chapter 26, he didn't do it necessarily for the benefit of Herod Agrippa. He was addressing Herod Agrippa as a matter of protocol, but there were hundreds of people present, and he was taking the opportunity whereby he had to speak before Herod Agrippa as an opportunity to to preach the gospel before hundreds of people. And the word of God would, would divide the sheep from the goats. And that's very clear throughout his epistles, the book of Acts. The word of God would divide the sheep from the goats and, and, and reveal what's in a man's heart. All right. Now, in order to strengthen our faith, we want to deal with a few crass follies of the Jews and their belief and their exegesis of the scriptures, since they so maliciously revile our faith. If this should move any Jew to reform or repent, so much the better. 
We are now not talking with the Jews, but about the Jews and their dealings, so that our Germans, too, might be informed. There is one thing about which they boast and pride themselves beyond measure, that is their descent from the foremost people on earth, from Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and from the twelve patriarchs, and thus from the holy people of Israel. Now, Luther might want to pause and wonder, though, why is there no mention in the Bible of Abraham procuring women for prostitution and running a usury operation? Because if the Jews, if Abraham is of the same seed that the Jews Luther is used to associating with, they're not associating with, used to observing, if they're from a, the, the same common family, then why wasn't Abraham a pimp and a usurer? Clearly they're not well, the well, same people. Christ basically told them in, in John chapter 8, if you were the children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. Right. They don't do the works of Abraham. Well, well of course not. They never did. Abraham wasn't They're, hiding behind the temple, you know, beckoning children. He, he told them in John chapter 8, he said, I know you are Abraham's seed. And they were, but they were children of Esau. And right. that's how they were Abraham's seed. But they were still of their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning, which, has, which can only be a reference to Cain. That can't be a reference to anybody but Cain. And we could trace the children of Cain down into their mingling with the children of Canaan, their intermarriage with Esau, and, and all the way down to Jerusalem in the first century. That could be traced very easily in, in several steps in Scripture. Why is those Scriptures there? That's why they're there. That's why Genesis chapter 36 is there. That's why Genesis chapter 15 is there. Those um, th those pieces of information about the Kenites and the Canaanites, the Rephaim and the Canaanites, Esau, and how all of his, his children were basically Canaanites, and even his children with the Ishmaelite women, woman intermingled with the Canaanites. Well, well, that's there so that we can see this story. Otherwise, we would need that history. And, and God probably wouldn't have went through such... Um, put, putting men to such great pains to preserve it. The, the basic story of two seed line it is clear in the historical narrative of Scripture and in the New Testament. He told these people they were Abraham's seed, but they weren't Abraham's children because they didn't do the works of, of Abraham. You could have a bastard grandson. He could be your seed, but he's not really your child. You're not going to take him and put him into the position of a son because he can't follow in your works. He, he just can't do it. He doesn't have the genetic material and the spirit of God, which is necessary to do good works. So, so a, a bastard is, as the old Greek adage goes, forever the enemy of the true born. And the, the examples of that, our, our history is replete with examples of that. Now, when the Greeks used the term bastard, what was their understanding of the term? Somebody who was of dubious origins, you know, admixture? or well, well, yes, absolutely. The bastard, the word bastard in Greek, as it appears in the Septuagint, comes from the Greek word nathos, and nathos is the antonym of the Greek word Ganesius, and Ganesius means 
of the race. It's so that a bastard is someone who is of no race. Ganesius means authentic in terms of genesis or origin. Okay? That's Ganesius. Its antonym is Nathus, which is illegitimate or spurious, and it's translated bastard. All right. St. Paul himself admits this when he says in Romans 9, 5, quorum patres, that is, to them belong the patriarchs, and of their race is the Christ, etc. And Christ himself declares in John 4, 22, salvation is from the Jews. Therefore, they yeah, both... Yeah, it's absolutely, I'm sorry, it's absolutely amazing to me that Luther can quote Romans 9, 5 and miss the whole point where St. Paul says that not all of those in Israel are of Israel, and he goes on from Romans 9.1 through Romans 9.13 and builds up to a comparison between Jacob and Esau. Not all of those in Israel are of Israel. Paul is only writing, praying for the, for the benefit that, that he could go to Jerusalem and save those of his kinsmen according to the flesh who are of Israel. To them belong the patriarchs, and their race is the anointed race, the race of the Christ, right? And then he goes on and says, talks about the promises to, to Rebecca and, and Isaac and, and Jacob and compares Jacob to Esau and quotes, he quotes two important passages of, passages of Scripture where of Rebecca it's told, two nations are in thy womb and where in Malachi, Yahweh said that he hated Esau and Paul quotes that. And why does he do that? Why is he making that comparison? Because he's comparing the Israelites of Judea as opposed to the descendants of Esau, the Edomites of Judea. Martin Luther quotes Romans 9.5 and misses that entire, very precise explanation by the Apostle Paul. That blindness, that, that blindness can only come from God. A brilliant man like Martin Luther can't be that stupid. That blindness can only come from God. So, so we shouldn't vaunt ourselves about, above Martin Luther. We should only praise God because his word is true, because we were told that Israel would be blind. Right. and It's time to take the blind Didn't Christ off. say that there were many spiritual men, many clerics, many... Um, teachers and prophets who had sought to see things, sought to hear things, sought to know things, and th they did not know them. Well, well think, right. Peter talked about the angels peering into the, the things of, of Christ that, and, and didn't get it, right? Right. I wonder, though, as to the topic... Uh, oh, yes, the topic of... Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. We don't want to go too far off on a tangent. There have been some evangelicals who insist 
that is a mistranslation. What that really means is, Jacob have I loved, Esau I love less. And they say that that's what God meant by to hate, that he, he loves no. both of them. They don't mean hate. I hated him. Read Malachi. I hated him and laid his mountains waste. That, that word miseo means to hate, to despise, to abhor. It doesn't mean to love less. That, that's this, that this damned, peace-loving, hippie, beatnik, Jew Christianity that they're teaching in these churches today, that that's not the Christianity of Christ. And, of course, it's not really Christianity at all. It's really Dharma. It, it's... It, it's Judaism. It's a religion only devils could love. So would Luther have been aware of this? Do we know if Luther's education extended to Greek? Well, well he must have had a familiarity with Greek. He definitely understood Latin. Right. I, don't, I, can't, I can't imagine him not having some familiarity with Greek, but I can't say what his education was. I don't know. I wasn't there. Back then as a priest, if you didn't speak Latin, basically you weren't a priest pretty much. Am, am I correct? Well, right. That, that that probably did a much a, a lot of damage to the ecclesia of God when Greek was departed from and the Latin Vulgate, which the the, the word Vulgate's a bad word, but the, the Latin of Jerome became, and they call it the Vulgate, but I don't agree with that. But but the Latin translations of Jerome became basically the scripture of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, and Greek was given a, a, um, a back burner. So, so I think that did a lot of damage. I, I, I really do. I could be wrong, but I really do. That the, um, the, the lack of study, the, the study in Latin at the expense of the original Greek and Hebrew probably gave us a lot of hurt. All right. And Christ himself declares in John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews. Therefore, they boast of being the noblest, yes, the only noble people on earth. In comparison with them, and in their eyes, we Gentiles, goyim, are not human. In fact, we hardly deserve to be considered poor worms by them, for we are not of that high and noble blood, lineage, birth, and descent. This is their argument, and indeed, I think it is the greatest and strongest reason for their pride and boasting. Although, if Luther well, knew the true origins of the Jews, they they have no noble blood, lineage, birth, and descent. If they did, they're not doing anything to protect it because they'll mate with anything that moves. You, you know, Christ didn't say salvation is from the Jews. He said salvation is from among the Judeans. And, and what Judea was at the time was it was a multi-ethnic state consisting of people of Israel and people of Edom and people of other Canaanite nations, as well as Greek and Roman settlers and a lot of people that were bastards, were part one race and part the other, if you want to consider the Edomites and Canaanites to be properly racist because they're really all bastards. Well, aside from that, Salvation is from of the Judeans, and he's speaking to the Samaritan woman, but that doesn't mean salvation is from the Jews, because 
there were true Israelites in Judea at the time of Christ. There weren't any true Israelites among the Jews unless they were very recent converts at the time of Luther because we were told that the tares, the goats, the, the enemies of Christ would reject him and they are the people from whom the Jews descended. Those who say they are Judah but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan, that's who they are in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. That's the words of Christ. Luther couldn't have that ability to, to put that together. That doesn't mean it's not true. It's absolutely true. It's been right there in plain sight for 2,000 years. 1930 years, possibly, since John wrote the Revelation. 1920 years. So, and it's in the words of Paul and, and in the Gospels before that. It, it's, um, it's just not fair to take the term Judean and, and extend it to the Jews as, as if they are the sum total of the Judeans of the first century, which is what is done. It's like uh, I don't, I, it, it's like taking these that these um, Cretans in, inhabiting Philadelphia today and um, imagining that they were the same people that the founding fathers of this nation addressed 200 years ago. It's simply not true. Just because they're there in presence and in name doesn't mean that they are the skions of the original people of Philadelphia. They're simply not. And we see that in, a, in our own recent history that's easy to see. It's a little harder to see the displacement of true Israel in Judah 2,000 years ago. But it's in the pages of Josephus. It's in the pages of the New Testament. Yet you have to be shown it in order to understand it. You do. Well, how many formerly white civilizations are now overrun by demons and devils and they're claiming that they're the people who 3,000, 4,000, 2,000 years ago built those ancient civilizations. Well, well, you can't even convince the Slavic people of modern, well, well, former Yugoslavia, modern Macedonia, that they're not Greeks. They believe that their ancestors were the original Macedonians. They're Slavs. Their ancestors the immigrated there in the 8th and 9th century several hundred years well, well, after the breakup of the Western Roman Empire. Right. Alexander the Great was 2,300 years ago, and the Slavs came into Macedonia, what we know as Macedonia, only 1,200 years ago. But those people in Macedonia today, they truly believe that they are the descendants of the, the great Greeks of the Hellenistic Age, which That's is laughable. It is laughable. But, you know, I, I, I heard this from somebody else. I wish I could give that person credit right now. But, you know, these, these white, these um, non-Christian identity people, these white nationalists, that these, a lot of these mainstream Christians who have a slight awakening, that they'll take for granted that the, the great cultures of the past in India and in Egypt were white at one time, and, and they were. 
But when you tell, and Persia, the Persians were white, they were Aryans, and, and they'll believe that. But when you tell them that the people in Palestine used to be white, they'll laugh at you. That, that, it's a total cognitive dissonance. Absolutely. All right. Well, well anyway, Luther's, um, Luther's attitude here is actually the exact fulfillment of the meaning, the true meaning of the prophecy of Hosea, where it says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, Ye are not my people. Now, now it's the Christians of Europe who are being told for 2,000 years now that ye are not my people. Ye are just Gentiles saved by grace, perhaps for 1,900 years. You're only Gentiles saved by grace. You're not the people of God. It's to them that this prophecy in Hosea is made, where it was said to them, ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. And then it says, then the children of Judah, not the people we know as Jews, but true Judah, and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint themselves one head. That one head is Christ. Now, the apostle Paul was telling these people explicitly that they were Israel, that they were the children of God. It's in his epistle to the Romans. It's in his epistle to 1 Corinthians. It's in his epistle to the Philippians. It's in his epistle to the Colossians. It's in not all, but almost all of his epistles. There's explicit language indicating to the people there that they're being reconciled to Yahweh, that they are dispersed Israelites, Israel according to the flesh, who are being reconciled to God in Christ. This prophecy was fulfilled in Paul of Tarsus, but 2,000 years later, today, we still don't understand it. We as a people, identity Christians understand it, and we're mocked. We're mocked because most Christians today have their instruction from the Jews. And they're worshiping Jews. They're not worshiping Christ. I have a quote. I would like to make this quote. This is from the Christogenia Forum. It was only posted a couple of days ago. It's kind of um, timely that this came to my attention just this morning. I read it for the first time this morning. This is from Michael Allen on the Christiania Forum. Of course, Michael Allen is only his board name, but that's okay. I won't tell on him. He wrote this, and it's from a book which he has in his library called Great Ages and Ideas of the Jewish People, a book published in 1956. In a section of the book called The Talmudic Age, which was authored by a devil, by a rabbi named Gerson D. Cohen. And of course, Michael is not inclined towards the words of this guy, but he understands that he's an irredeemable bastard, yet he's admitting some 
He's making some rather interesting and frank admissions here. And this is a quote. It's one paragraph in this book where it says, one other source for the self-conscious assertion of the election must be mentioned. For here, strangely enough, the Jews were the cause of their own embarrassment. The effectiveness of Jewish missionary activity, it is well known, immeasurably facilitated Christian preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. Of course, that's his word. What is often glossed over is the claim of the Christian preachers to represent true Israel. Now, this Jew rabbi is talking about those first century apostles. What is often glossed over is the claim of the Christian preachers to represent true Israel. Their contention that the new sect was the rightful heir to God's revelation to the patriarchs, Moses, and the prophets. The Talmudic community, beginning with the second century, so we see that this rabbi admits the teachings of Paul in the New Testament, that the people Paul was going to, he was telling them that they were the true, authentic children of Israel. And then he says, the Talmudic community, beginning with the second century, often found itself forced to defend its claim to the title of Israel. One of the deep sources of tension between Judaism and Christianity, one that never appeared in Jewish-Muslim relations was the debate, and this is a telling sentence, was the debate of two pretenders to the same title. So the rabbi is denying that the Christians of Europe deserves it, but he's also really denying that the Jews deserve it. And he goes on to say, for reasons of prudence, the Christian church later chose not to emphasize the question of the Israelite name. And that's true. The Roman Catholic Church did not carry on the tradition of Paul of Tarsus. Paul of Tarsus was teaching Israel identity. He was teaching, and he was correct, that the nations of Europe were the physical descendants of the children of Israel. They were the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that his seed would become many nations. Now, this Jew is denying that part, but he's admitting the part that Paul of Tarsus and the Christian apostles were teaching that, and they sure as hell were teaching that. He goes on to say that the Christian church later chose not to emphasize that. They chose not to emphasize the question of the Israelite name. But the claim to succession is one which the church has never given up. And I would say that that's because the church didn't really understand Paul of Tarsus or didn't want to understand him, and they claim to be a spiritual Israel, which, again, opens the door to universalism. Paul didn't teach universalism. He was teaching these people in Europe, that, and so did the Apostle James, that they were physical, genetic Israel, the 12 tribes scattered abroad. There's no room for universalism when you understand that. The Jew goes on to say, 
the Jew, and this is his quote, this is this hype rabbi in 1956 making this comparison and this claim of the original apostles of Christ that they were indeed going to genetic Israelites. And he says, the Jew, in turn, all the more aggressively affirmed his lineage and his election against all pretenders. Jacob was again at war with Esau over the primal birthright. So, so there's a lot of things that, that stand out in that one passage, one paragraph from this Jew rabbi. And, and we see that even he admitted that the first, ascent, the first century preachers of Christianity, which is a reference to the original apostles, they were teaching that the gospel was being brought to genetic Israel. That is the fulfillment of Hosea 1.10. The Jew doesn't understand that. The rabbis don't understand that because they're, they're also blind and don't understand classical history and prophecy the way Paul of Tarsus and the first century apostles understood those things. But we see the Jew admitting this is the struggle between Jacob and Esau. Do you have any right. comments? Well, there are some people out there, and I'm not saying the poster in the form is one. I don't believe he is. But there are some people who they'll see something that a Jew posts or writes or presents telling on other Jews, and they'll think, oh, we found an ally. Oh no! This no Jew could ever be an ally, but but it is interesting to point out the admissions that they make because they understand Christianity oh, absolutely in some ways better than today's Christians do. They sure as hell don't understand Christianity the way Christ and the apostles understood it. But for the Jew to even make this admission that early Christians had asserted their identity as Israelites and not refuted the Jewish claims. But, well, you know, that's the ground that identity Christians stand on today. We can support our claims with history and archaeology. Right. But mainstream Christians who are living Judaized lives and have Judaized minds, they just scoff at us because they've been taught by the Jews to scoff at us. Martin Luther didn't understand these things at all, but he took for granted the Jewish claims concerning their identity. And that is the beginning for Christians. That is the beginning of universalism. All right. Do you want to continue? Therefore, God has to endure that in their synagogues, their prayers, songs, doctrines, and their whole life, they come and stand before him and plague him grievously, if I may speak of God in such a human fashion. Thus, he must listen to their boasts and their praises to him for setting them apart from the Gentiles, for letting them be descended from the holy patriarchs, 
and for selecting them to be his holy and peculiar people. And there is no limit and no end to this boasting about their descent and their physical birth from their fathers. As an aside, though, they can't even say the word God. They don't write it. It's G hyphen D. They, they never call on him by name. Right. You know, Luther, he, he couldn't have been a student. Anybody who accepts this Jewish story that Jews were set apart from the Gentiles, they didn't read the rest of the Bible. They only read Genesis and took it for granted that those people, and, and maybe Exodus, and took it for granted that those people are the Jews of today, which is also wrong. But, you know, God set apart Israel in Exodus, and, and there's no doubt about that. And Israel was set apart for about 800 years. And because Israel sinned, and this is the entire Bible story, let's read the rest of the Bible. Because Israel sinned, what was to be Israel's fate? They were to be scattered among the nations. When did that happen? Well, according to the prophets, that happened in 740 B.C. It started to happen in 740 B.C. It finished happening in 580 B.C. Now, yes, there was a remnant that returned to Jerusalem. They weren't Jews. A lot of them were Judah. None of them were Jews. But that remnant was only a very, very small portion, 42,000, 44,000 people out of hundreds of thousands who were carted away by the Assyrians and the Babylonians to be scattered among the nations. And they would only be regathered from those nations in Christ. Which is the story of the prophets and the Gospels. So, so even Martin Luther, he only understands half his Old Testament. Israel was to be scattered among the nations. It's in Jeremiah... It's in Ezekiel, it's in Isaiah, it's very explicit in all of those prophets. It's the story of Hosea, it's the story of Amos, it's, it is the prophets. Israel was to be scattered among the nations. That didn't happen in 70 AD, that happened 800 years before. Well, Luther clearly didn't grasp the whole picture, did he? No, he didn't even, he, he didn't, not at all. But that's why we're here. Well, I, I mean, Martin Luther was a great man. He, he, he was a very brave man. Don't get me wrong. He, he definitely had his good points. We will talk about a lot of those good points in the series. But where he was wrong, we need to point this out. We need to contrast the Christian identity viewpoint with Luther's viewpoint, because we understand the nature of the Jews as Satan, as devils. Martin Luther, even though he thought they were God's people, he still knew in the end that they were irredeemable devils. That's because he came to understand their nature and their character. We're not simply slandering Jews because they're Jews. We're slandering Jews because they prove by doing the works of their father who they are time and time and time again. Bill, now, Martin Luther, 
Well, it's not slander, then we should say we're exposing them. Well, well, right. Now, now Martin Luther, he wrote 500 years ago. He wrote 500 years ago. He didn't even see half the things, a tenth of the things that the Jews and their treachery that they were actually capable of. He didn't see anywhere near the evil. For all that he did see, he didn't see anywhere near the evil that they are actually capable of. Because in the end, it's Jews that are responsible, converso Jews that are responsible for the Thirty Years' War. It's Jews that are responsible for World War One, the Bolshevik Revolution, World War Two, the deaths of at least the direct deaths, not talking about residual effects, the direct deaths of at least 100 million Christians in the first 50 years of the 20th century alone. That doesn't count the, the tens of millions of people that died in the centuries leading up to that, that, the, that their blood is on the hands of Jewry. There's no doubt. So Martin Luther, he, he understood the Jews were demons, but he didn't see the half of it. And he still understood. All right. Continue with Luther. Yeah, we have time for a couple more paragraphs here. And to fill the measure of their raving, mad, and stupid folly, they boast and they thank God in the first place because they are created as human beings and not as animals, in the second place because they are Israelites and not goyim, in the third place because they were created as males and not as females. They did not learn such tomfoolery from Israel, but from the goyim. For history records that the Greek Plato daily accorded God such praise and thanksgiving, if such arrogance and blasphemy may be termed praise of God. This man, too, praised his God for these three items, that he was a human being and not an animal, a male and not a female, a Greek and not a non-Greek or barbarian. This is a fool's boast, the gratitude of a barbarian who blasphemes God. Similarly, the Italians fancy themselves the only human beings they imagine, the only human beings. They imagine that all other people in the world are non-humans, mere ducks or mice, by comparison. Well, well, yeah, you know, the Jews have stolen and perverted the truth of Scripture, which prevents men from accepting it once they realize it. Because Christ told them in Luke chapter 11, Woe unto you lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge, and ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. That, that's a very good description of what the Jew has done, because they have taken away that key of knowledge. They have perverted the truth of Scripture. And because of the Jewish treachery, men refuse today to see the racial, to acknowledge anyway, the racial message of Scripture. The fact that the covenants with Israel are indeed racial covenants is elucidated by Paul of Tarsus. It's by Paul of Tarsus at the end of Acts chapter 26. In Hebrews chapter 8, in Romans chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 3, and Luther was blind to that because believing himself 
to be something other than an Israelite, he's forced into universalism. Believing the Jews to be the Israelites, he's forced to take a universalist position. Therefore, the Jews, in, in their false claims, have barred the, 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 the gates and taken away the key of knowledge, and Luther couldn't enter into it. He was blind for those reasons, because he took for granted the false Jewish claim to be Israel because he didn't understand the history of ancient Israel, he accepted those claims. All right. Continuing Luther. I hope I made that clear. I, I mean, it's, it, it's, um, it's kind of an abstract idea, but, but it's very clear in Scripture. All right. No one can take away from their pride concerning their blood and their descent from Israel. In the Old Testament, they lost many a battle and wars over this matter, though no Jew understands this. All the prophets censured them for it, for it betrays an arrogant, carnal presumption, devoid of spirit and of faith. They were also slain and persecuted for this reason. St. John the Baptist took them the task severely because of it, saying, do not presume to say to yourselves, we are Abraham for our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Matthew 3, 9. He did not call them Abraham's children, but a brood of vipers. Matthew 3, 7. Oh, that was too insulting for the noble blood and race of Israel, and they declared, he has a demon. Matthew eleven eighteen. Our Lord also calls them a brood of vipers. Furthermore, in John 3.39, he states, If you were Abraham's children, would you would do what Abraham did. You are of your father the devil. It should have um, occurred to Luther that a brood of vipers cannot be children of Abraham. Well, well, it should have occurred to Luther that they simply weren't Israelites, but that never occurred to Luther. No matter what he recognized in the history and in the scripture, I mean, denying that, that their claim to their bloodline, he, he still didn't recognize that they simply were not Israel. And, and Christ said it very plainly, not only in the Revelation, but in Luke 10, Luke 11, John 8, and, and elsewhere. And, and look at... Look at um, what the Apostle John said in his first epistle where he says, they came out from us, but they were not of us. In other words, they were infiltrators. And the Apostle Jude describes them as infiltrators in his epistle, those from of old. And, and Peter describes them as infiltrators in his second epistle. So, so Luther was just, he, he took at face value their claim to be Israel, and it never, seems to have never occurred to him to challenge that identification. He accepted it entirely. And he was blind to a lot of the meaning of the New Testament because he accepted it. If he had ever read the history of Josephus, which talks about the 
subsumption of the Edomite and Canaanite peoples into Judaism. Would he have gotten it then? I don't know. Maybe he did read that. It was available to him. I mean, William Whiston came along and translated it uh, only a couple of centuries after Martin Luther, I think, in, in the 1700s. Whiston's, the manuscripts he used must have been available to men at Luther's time. Did Luther read it? I don't know. I can't answer that, but, but he didn't see it even if he did. Right. If it was intolerable to them to hear that they were not Abraham's but the devil's children, nor could they bear to hear this today, if they should surrender this boast and argument, their whole system, which is built on it, would topple and change. Well, well, Luther misunderstood the nature of the racial covenants, and, and therefore certain passages of Scripture are easy to misinterpret. The Edomite Jews were indeed vipers. They, that they may have been able to state that they were descended from Abraham. They did. They descended from Esau. And they did it even as Christ acknowledged that in John chapter 8. But even if God raised up children of Abraham from stones, that does not make them heirs of the covenant. And every, just about everybody that reads the words of John the Baptist misses that point. Yeah, sure, God would raise up children of Abraham from stones if he desired. He's God. He could do that. That doesn't make them heirs of the covenant. It doesn't make those children of Abraham from stones heirs of the covenant, the covenant's promised to Jacob. John the Baptist is not implying that it would. Because these Edomite bastards, they may as well be the children of stones. They're still not going to be heirs of the covenant. The covenant's through Jacob. It's not through Esau. If Luther had known the history, he may have realized these things. Evidently, he didn't know the history because he took the Jewish claims for granted. Christ told the Jews that they were not his sheep. That's all we need to know. Christ said, if, Christ said you do not believe me because you were not my sheep. The Catholic Church has always taught they weren't his sheep because they did not believe him. But that's not what the Greek says in John chapter 10. The Greek says, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. There's no perverting that. The people he said that to were not his sheep. Why? Because they were the children of Cain, who was a murderer from the beginning. They weren't the children of Seth. They weren't the children of Noah. They weren't the children of Jacob. They may have been in part, but they were in part the children of Cain. They were bastards, and a bastard shall not entered the congregation of God, period. Luther didn't get that because he didn't understand the history. That's what it boils down to. So, so the biggest lesson I think we're going to get from this presentation of Martin Luther's work is that it's important to understand history, and especially biblical history. All right. Well, we should probably, this should probably be a good place to break. We will pick up next weekend. There's no way we're going to finish part one tonight. I mean, we got pages left. We'll pick up with this next week. 
with Luther Saturday or night. back to Genesis? What would Martin Luther? We'll we'll be back on Genesis in two or three weeks. All right. Praise Yahweh. Okay. Well, we'll talk about it next week. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, everybody. I will be here on Friday night with Acts chapter 28. I will be um, wrapping up my Acts presentation. I believe on January on, on the following Friday. I have to look at the date right now because I'm just I'm just lost. The following Friday on January 31st. I'm going to take calls. I'm going to have a call-in program. I'm going to do that at least once every other month throughout this year or, or throughout the near future and, and see how that goes. Uh, I would like calls. I would like participation. Even if it's opposition, that's fine, as long as it's sensible opposition and not some damn Jew troll who's just trying to disrupt things because he, he's not going to get anywhere. But, but I, I'm welcome to... Discussion and 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 that's fine. That's what we need. That's where edification comes from. So next week, Acts chapter twenty-eight. The following week, Friday night, a call-in program. I will be here next week with Sword Brethren with Martin Luther on the Jews, part three. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not of the Jews. And good night.